1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says inflation is still well above the Fed's goal. So is the market premature in betting on rate cuts next year? Or will the Hawks change their tune if the data continue to worsen? We'll ask her directly when she joins us in an exclusive live interview just ahead. Plus, our market guest sees the potential for stocks to do better than expected next year. But only if two key conditions are met. He'll tell us what they are. And luxury is weak, beauty is strong, and so are snacks. And that is helping one stock to some nice gains on the back of earnings today. It's a name that may not be on your radar. It's not technically a mystery chart. You can still tweet me your guesses at Kelly C We'll talk to the CEO about the consumer trends he's seeing. Before all that, though, let's start with the markets. Dom Chu is back. Hi, Dom, with the numbers.
2: It's Some modest moves, Kelly, right now. As you can see, the Dow Industrial is only up about, or down, rather, 106 points one-third of 1%, really the laggard so far among the major indices. The S&P 500 sitting right at 4,500 on the nose, just about flat on the session, down two points. At the highs, we were actually up about nine and down 15 at the lows. So it's been a modest move kind of day for the broader index in the S&P. The Nasdaq composite just about flat as well, 14,101. You mentioned that Retail trade. The luxury end of things taking their cue a little bit from across the Atlantic and Burberry. The UK listed shares right now down about 11 percent. Revenue growth coming in lower than expectations. The company also saying it's maybe not likely to meet its previously stated annual profit goals. Burberry shares down 11 percent. It's dragging down other European luxury houses like Caring down two and a half percent. LVMH down one and a half percent. Even Ralph Lauren and Tapestry on the U.S. kind of higher end side of things down about two and a half percent as well. So that luxury end not faring well in today's trade. Meanwhile, take a look at some of the other retailers in focus. The big box guys. We're talking Walmart and Target. Walmart and Target both in the last couple of days. Walmart this morning, both reporting better than expected profits and revenues. Target Again, down modestly. It was up a little bit earlier on today, or just modestly down. And the Walmart was down to 7.5%. Now, Walmart did hit a 52-week record high in yesterday's session, so the setup was not there. But Walmart did beat on profits and revenues, but the forecast left some things to be desired. I know you'll be talking about that in a bit, but check out the setup over the year. Walmart was already up 10 11% right now on a year-to-date basis, even with the move that we're seeing here Target still down 13, even with that surge yesterday. So, again, key on this, maybe a bit of a mean reversion trade in play, Cal, for Target and Walmart. I'll send things back over
1: to you. Wow, Dom, thank you very much. Investors are broadly on edge after Walmart's CFO said the company saw customer purchases slow in the back half of October and that they are thinking slightly more cautiously about the consumer versus 90 days ago. My next guest says that even Target, which soared yesterday on better earnings, looks to be facing a deteriorating consumer backdrop in the weeks ahead, but are these concerns already priced into shares or not? Let's ask Christopher Horvers. He's JP Morgan senior analyst covering the broadline and hardline retail space. It's great to have you here, Chris. Welcome. Good
3: afternoon, Kelly. Uh,
1: can I just ask you what you think is going on here after sifting through these reports the last couple of days?
3: Yeah, I think you're seeing earlier in the year, the headwinds on the goods retailers was basically Sheriff Wallet. You had revenge travel. You know, you bought everything for your home. You bought your workout equipment, you know, during COVID. And so you had this long tail of headwinds. What what we've observed really since August is more cyclical headwinds. So we're seeing weakness on the low end consumer. You know, Walmart talked about this on their call today. People are increasingly awaiting for events to shop. So until it's on sale, until it's so close to need, I'm not gonna buy it. And that continues to exaggerate over the year. And then the other piece that's going on is really pricing. So you have deep disinflation in food. So food inflation, which is two thirds of Walmart's mix was up double digit to start the year. Now it's 3%. So that's naturally slowing things down. But what's not happening is the units picking up as prices settle in true so that's problematic and then the last piece is you're seeing a ton of deflation you know most of what you buy around the holidays and for christmas is brought over on a boat and uh, with ocean freight rates coming way down and demand coming down you're seeing massive disinflation in goods appliances furniture home furnishings and other electronics all that product is coming in at a much lower price without any unit response so in summary, it was share of wallet. Now it seems much more cyclical and low-end oriented.
1: It was share of wallet. Now it seems much more cyclical and lower-end oriented. That, that is very well captures, I think, uh, what investors are, are gleaning here. So what does that mean for the stocks? You know, Target, obviously, you could say, well, a lot of bad news was already priced in. Maybe it can do OK. Uh, you know, Walmart's always been kind of a, uh, a healthy name to own in a portfolio. What, strategically, what's the play here?
3: Yeah. It's, it's very muddled right now because normally into a slowdown, you want to get defensive and you want to own something like Walmart, which is more grocery oriented, more staples oriented. But the problem there is that that disinflation and food and weakness at the low end really hits them much, is much, very hard. Uh, and it's a name, as you see today, which is down 8 percent because it was owned and expectations were high and people are hiding in it. So I think at the margin, it's tougher for Walmart. And I also think it's tougher for Target because they're 60% general merchandise. They also are exposed to the low end, although not not as much as Walmart. So the names that we would be buying today include Mighty Costco, that's an above average consumer with tremendous share gains and loyalty. Uh, We would be buying Ulta Beauty because Beauty is still a good category. There is still some share of wallet reversion going on. And you have generational trends with Gen Z, uh, and millennials being strong adopters of social media and, and beauty. Uh, and then at, and at the same time, uh, you know, the vendors really need them. And the last area that we're really focused on is, is the more defensive names that tend to do well if you do have a consumer recession. And that's really the auto parts retailers. So an AutoZone and O'Reilly, very needs-based, have a lot of strong pricing power, and that consumer tends to focus more on needs and maintaining their vehicle uh, against buying discretionary items. That's
1: really interesting. And you're neutral on Walmart and you're neutral on Target. I can't help but observe how much you're kind of talking about or almost taking for granted that the consumer is headed for some kind of slowdown. Why can't they, they just suddenly regain momentum here? Why can't we have a first half of 2024 where, hey, the labor market's still okay and, and real incomes are better because of these disinflationary trends? Um, you know, is that possible, you think? Or would that be highly unlikely?
3: I think you're going to see spurts, like I think you'll see the consumers show up around Black Friday. Uh, it's going to show up around Christmas. So you'll see them come back in spurts. But we've used this analogy really since this time last year is that we're boiling the frog. Like, it doesn't seem that bad, but slowly that temperature is turning up. Mm-hmm. And, and the headwinds that you're seeing are, one, wage growth slowing. Wage growth this stock year was high single digits. Now it's running 4% and continuing to moderate the balance sheet burn off of COVID savings, is particularly impacting the low to mid end. You have one to two point headwind from student loan repayment starting. Uh, and I think that's what, why you're starting to see it now. It's that confluence of wages are slower, balance sheets are, are less full, and now you have this student loan payment. Uh, and it's and it sort of sort of culminating as we see yeah. see it currently.
1: No, that's fascinating. It's almost like a mini beige book session here <laughs> with a lot <laughs> exactly. of implications, obviously for your coverage space. Chris, thanks for joining us to react. We appreciate it today. Thanks, Kelly. Christopher Horvers with J.P. Morgan. Sticking with the consumer, how bad can it be if snack food company J and J is popping? The shares are up almost five percent, nearing their best day of the year on the back of earnings. They're the owner of well-known snacks like Dippin' Dots, Super Pretzel, and Icy big favorites in this household. And they saw strength across all categories, from theme parks to supermarkets. They also see volume growth and pricing power into next year. Let's bring in J&J snack food CEO Dan Fashioner now. Dan, it's great to have you here. Welcome.
0: Nice to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Are you a little unnerved after hearing from our retail analyst a moment ago? Do you think you're <laughs> you're the, the, the best? What is it called? The cleanest shirt and the dirty laundry or something?
0: We might be, uh, and listening to it, it certainly uh, sets you back a little bit. But I, you know, I think the great thing about J and J in it, and it kind of ties in with what you were just talking about. We're sold in such a diversified group of places with some iconic brands that that we're able to withstand uh, the kind of the puts and the takes of the consumer today.
1: What gives you the confidence going into next year, in particular? You know, you could easily have come out with a beat, but much more cautious guidance.
0: Yeah, we feel really good about the momentum that we have coming into 2024. We've been uh, working really hard at building up capacity and capabilities with inside our organization. And with that capacity and, and, and capabilities, we're seeing some really nice growth in just about every one of our segments. And so feel good about what's coming for
1: 2024. You So I, I do want to close by asking you about the weight loss drugs. But first, I just really want to get a handle here on what's driving the consumer strength. Look, you guys are a relatively low cost item. It doesn't uh, necessarily break the bank, but at the same time, you're discretionary. And maybe for a lot of people, that dip and dots purchase is unnecessary or that you know that extra IC at the game that they, they could forego. Um, would, would you typically expect to see, you know volumes start to fall if the consumer was really weakening here?
0: You know, we've been resilient during times like that in the past, and I think the reason we are is just the opposite of what you said. We're kind of a treat or a reward for a lot of cases where you where you might not be able to go on vacation, you might not buy the new car, you might not buy the new house. Uh, you can't afford a, a Dippin' Dots. You can afford an Icy. You can get a uh, a churro, right? And so, just the opposite of that, we feel pretty resilient when times like this come around.
1: And also, there's the exper- experiential kind of element of this. When people are going out there; they will find some of these brands. What about, though, the impact of weight loss drugs where, again, this, these might be areas that people used to snack uh, heavily on and, and not so much going forward?
0: We're watching that really closely. Uh, to date, we have seen no effect of that at all on our business. Uh, but, but we're going to watch it. We're, we're smart in the way that we operate. We're smart in the way that we put the right products out. And if we see some reaction to that, then, then the organization will take steps to make sure that we're selling a product. Uh, that fits the consumer today.
1: All right. JJSF is the ticker for those who are curious to check it out. Three and a half billion market cap nearly uh, and a really interesting story right now. Dan, thanks for joining us to tell it. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. Dan
1: Fashner, CEO of J&J Snack Foods. Still to come, stocks or bonds for 2024? Which would you rather? We'll ask City Steve Whiting what his investment strategy is heading into next year and why he expects equity returns to surprise to the upside. Plus, an exclusive with Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, who's already making headlines this morning, saying monetary policy is in a good place, but inflation is still well above the Fed's goal. We'll ask her what it'll take to bring it down later in the show. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on markets with the Dow down 120 points, little off session lows, the SP down a tenth of a percent, so is the NASDAQ. So the Dow's really the underperformer today. Also, check out shares of Carvana down on the news just now that Amazon will start allowing auto dealers to sell cars through its website, starting with Hyundai. And in fact, the CEO of Hyundai North America is joining us next hour in Power Lunch. Very much looking forward to that 7% drop for Carvana on news that Amazon will uh, allow car dealers. The Exchange is back after this.
4: This is
2: The Exchange On CNBC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems.
1: Welcome back to The Exchange. If you're not sure exactly how to position your portfolio these days, you're hardly alone. Many investors feel stuck between a hard place with bonds unattractive if rates or deficits stay higher for longer. And stocks looking a little scary as recession fears mount. Here to weigh in on what to do for the rest of this year and into next is Steve Whiting, City Global Wealth's chief investment strategist and chief economist. Steve, it's great to see you. Welcome.
5: Very good. Thanks for having me, Kelly.
1: Maybe we can also add a note about how strong your conviction is when you answer the following question, which is uh, where do you go stocks or, or bonds for the next, you know, six or 12 months here?
5: Well, I think it's a bit of both. And I would tell you that U.S. yields are still great competition for stocks, but global yields are terrible competition for stocks. And this whole period where we've had this outperformance of the economy and underperformance of financial markets—this, you know, year and a half of hangover—I think we're going to shake it off. Uh, and honestly, as we see employment slow down, inflation slow, the Federal Reserve is very likely to become a little more protective of the expansion that we have. Uh, And along with this rise in profits that we're seeing, and again, we can talk about downward guidance, uh, but we've raised our estimates for this year's profits and the levels for the next two years. So this combination is more attractive for financial markets generally, uh, and uh, even as we see some slowing in the economy coming.
1: Right. Let's talk about that slowing. How significant is it?
5: Well, we expect U.S. GDP growth next year to be 1.6%. Uh, But what does that mean? It means going from a labor market that was generating uh, 400,000 jobs to 200,000 jobs this year uh, down to something much slower. Uh, And it's really, again, a rebound in productivity growth. It's about cyclical industries like you saw the Home Builders Index uh, hit uh, a new annual low, uh, having trade and manufacturing activity contract for a year. We're going to be able to take those rolling recessions and roll them out in the coming year and that's more attractive for forward-looking financial markets if not immediately but it's also helping the bond market find its top in yield Uh, and we would think that appreciation in intermediate bonds uh, is going to be uh, quite attractive compared to where we see cash over the next few years.
1: Yeah and and strangely I feel less scared (laughs) with with your bonds call than I guess with the one about stocks right now because bonds feel like okay You've got the return, slower economy, maybe, you know, we already see the rate cut odds being priced. in. it would really take a massive rebound in inflation or a huge uh, additional new problem on the fiscal side to really make those feel scarier. On the stock side, though, I mean, that's where things look a little shaky, don't you think? And I I know everyone's conviction into year end, but you just it it feels like, you know, again, to quote the history, you typically want to sell the last Fed rate hike. And that's where we are now.
5: Well look, uh, rate cuts are not a panacea for the economy. But I'll tell you, when you've had uh the global stock market, excluding the Magnificent Seven, fall about 8% over two years while profits are rebounding, that's when things change. That's when we get a broadening in uh, market performance is what we expect over the next two years. So it's not really about year-end. I think getting some of the bad news and downward earnings estimate revisions uh, for the coming quarter and the one thereafter, it's going to make it more achievable for us uh, to grow and have a positive return in the coming year.
1: Now, I hope you're right that Session has been kind of rolling across industries, but it could also roll out with, without being more disruptive. Um, how unusual would that be, though, by historical standards? Again, everything post-pandemic has been um, different. So it's, we're totally, totally leaving on the table the fact that this time might be different, but it would be a break from, from the historical pattern, no?
5: Well, just as you said, the pandemic was different. To see demand for goods surge collapse for services It sent us into an asynchronous period for economic growth that we're eventually pushing our way out of. Uh, But there's been nothing about the economy that has been uh, normal in this post-pandemic period. Now, there have been some periods before where one sector of the economy takes a big loss. It broadens because of some financial impediments. We're thinking about uh, the 08 period uh, is is one. Uh, But beyond that, the way the economy has been performing now, where stimulus drove the initial gains in the economy, we didn't overbuild in the private sector this recovery. Then we saw we couldn't live with really weak labor demand. Services demand was coming back. This is really the the path for the economy is quite different uh, from a a simple singular collapse and everything and then rebound. So the one thing about our forecast though, there's nothing V-shaped about the recovery. We're expecting single digit EPS growth for the next two years, Uh, but if that is accompanied, right, by some moderation in interest rates, it's still gonna be an attractive return period for the average stock which has gone down for the last two years.
1: Wow, I know, I hope you're right. Steve, thanks for joining us to make your case. Really appreciate it today. My pleasure, thank you. Steve Whiting you. with City Global Wealth. Still ahead, BJ's and Gap are among the next crop of retail names to report results. We'll get a preview coming up in Earnings Exchange. Gap has actually surged 80% in the past six months. And we'll also hear from chip name Applied Materials, hitting a 52-week high today ahead of its results after the bell. Can these rallies continue? That's coming up on Earnings Exchange.
2: Support for this program is provided by Chevron
1: Welcome back. We got a slew of disappointing data this morning jobless claims coming in higher than expected last week. Industrial production contracted further in October, and homebuilder sentiment hit its lowest level so far this year. And while Fed Governor Lisa Cook says a soft landing scenario is possible as multiple factors work to curb inflation, investors aren't so sure as both yields and equities are under pressure today. Let's get another view from the Fed now. Joining us in an exclusive interview is Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester with our very own Steve Leesman. Steve?
4: Hey Kelly, yes, welcome from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. We're actually inside it and we are with the president of the Cleveland Federal Reserve Bank, Loretta Mester. Thanks for joining us, Loretta.
6: Thanks for being here in our bank.
4: It's been a number of years we've been doing this and I'm always excited to come out here to Cleveland, which is a beautiful city on a beautiful day, by the way. Um, Maybe not so beautiful on the data, but before I get to the data that Kelly talked about, which didn't look that great, let's go back just a couple days to the CPI data. How did you react to that?
6: Well, it was another good data print. I mean, I was uh, pleased with how it came in. It's, you know, continuing sort of the view that we're making progress on inflation, discernible progress. We need to see more of that continuing um, to be able to assess, you know, that whether inflation is still going to progress as we hope it will. Um, But it was a positive
4: report. Was it an all-clear report? Did it tell you that inflation has been vanquished and it's all no, going to be okay? No, I wouldn't
6: interpret it that way at all. I think it's we're going to have to see much more evidence that inflation is on that timely path back to 2%. But, you know, we do have really good evidence that it has made progress, and now it's just, is
4: it continuing? So you didn't take it that way. Did you watch how the market took it? Did you notice that yeah. the idea of any future rate hikes was priced out of at least the futures market? and that all of a sudden they brought ahead the probability of rate cuts into the spring?
6: Well, the market's going to react to data. They're reading the data prints the way we are. But of course, I think our job is really to take the panoply of data out there. We're not going to react to one data uh, release. We're going to look at all the data that's come in. And given where inflation was, we're going to need to be really convinced that inflation is on that timely path back to 2%. And I certainly would need to see more of continued progress the way we've seen to be convinced that we're on that path.
4: Do you think it was right for the market to take future rate hikes off the table?
6: Well, the market's going to do what the market does. Sure. Who am I to say whether the markets are right or wrong? They're assessing data, I'm assessing data. We're all going to be coming together at our FOMC to discuss what we're seeing and then we'll make a plan for what we think the next step uh, So you're step not going to is. say if
4: the market's right or wrong here?
6: I'm not going to say whether the market's right or wrong Okay.
4: Here. Can you talk to me about how you are looking at the impact of interest rates on uh, Fed policy? They were at 5%, which people came out and said that's something that's doing the Fed's work for it. Is that still true at 4.5% on the 10-year? So you're talking
6: about the long, yeah, the the 10-year. I mean, when you ever see those kind of, of, of measures, part of what the Fed does, right, is our monetary policy affects financial conditions overall, right? So we're looking at all of the parts of financial conditions, including... You know, what's going on in equity markets, what's happening in the bond market, what's happening in the, do- the value of the dollar. So, of course, we're going to look at um, those movements in those kind of financial conditions. Um, I think the rise in the 10-year has a number of sources, right? Some of mm-hmm. it was because they were also, the bond market participants were also reassessing the strong economic data that came in, just the way the Fed did as we went through the summer, and then in uh, the the fall, beginning of the fall. So part of it was that, but part of it also was the term premium. And in that sense, right, we would, if that were sustainable, that's going to have a dampening effect on the economy. So it would be part of the broader financial conditions that we'd be looking at in order to determine and calibrate our policy appropriately, given our dual mandate goals that we're trying to achieve.
4: So I'll ask, I guess, the question more directly is, a four and a half percent long bond along with what's happened with the stock market is that a welcome unwelcome or neutral change in financial conditions
6: well it's a change in financial conditions what we expected to happen when we were raising our fed funds rate our policy rate that's what we are anticipating will happen is that we will get a tightening of financial conditions that'll go through the economy you know transmit and that'll be what gets inflation Back on so that at path down levels to 2%. of the market
4: here, you still see them as helping the Fed in terms of doing its jobs.
6: Well, I think it's a, an appropriate way it's it's indicative that the transmission mechanism is working.
4: Um, when you had talked in October about the need for maybe a new framework for how the Fed communicates to the market here, if once you reach this peak level here, mm-hmm. can you talk about what that framework would look at? there's some who suggested, well, Go back to what Charlie Evans did, which is to put some uh, you know, some, some numerical numbers on it that you won't cut until X happens. Have you thought about that at all?
6: Yeah, I guess my feeling is in this campaign, if you will, right, we just need to see more evidence that inflation is really on this downward path. I wouldn't put triggers um, in, in there because I think what we've learned over time is that for example, right? it's been a pretty strong, resilient economy and a very, you know, in terms of growth and in terms of the labor market, and yet we have seen inflation move down, back down in a, in a, you know, a discernible way. And mm-hmm. so I think it would be very hard to put triggers and that kind of precision on one or two data points. I think what we're going to be doing is assessing all the data as it comes in and for my, my view, I, I need to be convinced that inflation is coming down in a timely way. I'd be concerned if we're in a situation where inflation stalls, right, at 3%, um, for example, or if we keep pushing out when we achieve our mm-hmm. 2% goal. And so I, that's the lens I'm looking at, is are we making progress, enough progress, enough evidence, right, that we are on that timely path back to 2%?
4: Kelly Evans has a question.
1: President Mester, just a quick one. Would a recession be a guarantee of looser Fed policy?
6: Well, that's, that, we're gonna always look at our dual mandate goals, Kelly. So it really will depend on sort of where we are on both parts of the mandate. So for example, if we do have a slowdown in growth, which I am expecting growth to slow, um, I don't have built in a recession, but you know, I do have below trend growth, right? That's part of the mechanism for getting inflation down. I don't have a recession built into my forecast, but as we go forward, we're going to be balancing the risks to both of our goals, and that'll help determine the path of policy.
4: Uh, Kelly, it's like a mind melt. You teed me up. I did want to ask you the the more direct question. Is your forecast for a soft landing, which I guess Lisa Cook this, this morning described as continued disinflation, without a huge spike in the unemployment rate.
6: So I have that in my forecast, and I can, in September I had that, and I also have it currently in my forecast. Because I think if you look at the economy, we do see slowing, right? When you talk to, especially if you go out and talk to district contacts, you know, they're forward-looking. They're telling us that they're seeing the economy slow. But none of them are really saying that things are going off a cliff or things are slowing significantly. They're just saying we are seeing kind of what we wanted to have happen, which things are slowing down. But we have to be very vigilant. We have to keep looking at the data and looking at how the economy is moving. And in a situation like this, where we are at this point, getting that kind of regional information from our contacts right. and our directors is going to be crucially important.
4: If, if you had to fill out your summary of economic projections right now, would you continue to pencil in another rate hike? Okay.
6: I haven't assessed that yet. Where I think we are right now is we're basically in that a very good spot for policy. Look, we raise the Fed funds rate pretty significantly, right? So you think about you're going up a massive a ship. We're at we're at a really good, you know, crow's nest. We're at the crow's nest. What does the crow's nest let you do? It lets you look out on the horizon and see where the data is coming in, where the economy's evolving, and then we'll have to see is it is it moving. In the way that we forecasted, in other words, is inflation coming down in the sustainable path? Is the unemployment rate moving down? Right. You know, you know, employment moving down as we wanted to. The moderation is growth, you know, slowing, and that'll inform where we go with policy going forward. So the you know we we're in a more balanced place, but I don't think we can say right now what necessarily the next you know. Policy meeting will be right. I think we just have we've gotten policy to a really good place so that we can observe And I think okay. that's a good place to be um,
4: apologies to the producers who say we're sort of out of time But they're also very nice people see I'm complimenting them so they give me a time to yell at me I gotta try this one more time the market has a hundred basis points of rate cuts built in for next year The f- average Fed official has 28 Markets watching now president master you right. want to tell them they're crazy
6: I don't want to say they're crazy because they're evaluating the data just the way we are, right? And so they have a forecast. They have an outlook. We have our outlook, right? I think where we we have been with inflation really makes me not want to, you know, move too soon thinking about, right, the time that we're going to normalize. And my feeling is that it's really not about cutting rates, right? It's really now about how long do we stay in a restrictive stance, right, and perhaps have to go higher given what happens in the economy. So that's where my thought processes is. Eventually, as I said, um, and the speech you referenced, right, we'll get to that point. Right. But that's just not part of the conversation okay. right now.
4: Loretta, you recently announced your retirement. We'll come back and talk about that, I'm sure, before you go. You're here through June, mm-hmm. and it's been a, a pleasure interviewing you over the years, but it won't be the last time, I'm sure. Kelly, back to you and with Cliffs from deep inside the Cleveland Federal Reserve Bank.
1: Well, we appreciate uh, you bringing that interview to us. Really good stuff. Steve, thank you. Our Steve Leisman, our thanks to President Loretta Mester as well. Uh, Steve, we'll be back tomorrow with another exclusive Boston Fed President Susan Collins. You can catch that on Squawk on the street around 1045 a.m. Eastern time. My next guest has been critical of Fed policy and its reliance on unguided data dependent monetary policy. He says it's hurting their inflation fighting credibility. Let's talk to Bill Lee. He's chief economist at the Milken Institute. Bill, good to see you. Anything you want to react to from Mester first?
7: First of all, when I refer to unguided uh, uh, monetary policy, the one person uh, who is truly guided and has given a lot of good guidance to the markets is Loretta Mester. I am in her fan club. I've been in her fan club her her entire professional life. Uh, And I must say, she's probably the best FOMC member uh, uh, we have right now. And it's a shame that she's going to be retiring.
1: Is this just because you passed on hiring her all those years ago? (laughs)
7: <laughs> Thank you for, for reminding me of that. Yes, uh, when I was at the Federal Reserve Board, I was part of the interview team that interviewed her, and, and we essentially told her, you're going to have a much better career in supervisory uh, uh, stuff uh, that you did your dissertation on at a regional Fed. She went to Philadelphia, became the research director, and then everyone recognized her brilliance and made <laughs> her uh, – the president of the Cleveland Fed. I, but but you know, the unguided policy is really serious because Loretta Messer's interview just gave everybody in the market exactly how to model the reaction function. We have a dual mandate. And when you ask how much are we gonna see rate cuts when we have a recession? She says, we gotta see how far we are from our mandate. Essentially, what's the gap? What was the rise in unemployment rate? How close are we to inflation being at 2%? Those are the parameters that market really seriously needs. The trouble is, she's one one voice on the FOMC and if Chair Powell had said that, you're going to see the volatility in the bond markets completely come down.
1: Explain that again, Bill. What do you think is so significant about her remarks that they that she is somewhat less data dependent or or the the data she would emphasize is is more balanced what if just a she elaborate. showed
7: you she showed you the importance of how she assesses the data every word out of her mouth was we gotta see where we are when we see what happens with the data is inflation uh, uh, back to target no is it going back to target at a pace that we we, uh, we want to have. Uh, and right now, she says, I don't know yet, because we only have one very good data point, and we've been hit fake before. So, so essentially, she's telling you how she's processing the information. Why would that bring gonna-
1: bond market volatility down if Powell said that? I would think maybe the opposite would happen. It would make it go up.
7: No, because the, what, what Chair Powell has always said is, I am flexible on my feet. I can bob and weave with the data, and I can shift monetary policy as needed. Professor Mester, or the doctor, uh, President Mester has said, we will move policy when we are convinced things are changing in, a, in, a, in, a, in a one direction or the other. If inflation is significantly coming down, we will consider easing. If unemployment rate is suddenly shifting up significantly, we will consider shifting. It's the words significantly. And, and, and convinced. Those so it, are the words that the market has ignored.
1: It, it's funny because when I hear you say that, <clears throat> I think to myself, well, they're just going to be even more um, likely to make policy mistakes because by the time the high frequency data shows up in the monthly data and by the time the monthly data shows significant, which in my mind means a three to six month change, then by the time they react, it means they're going to overly loosen on the way uh, on earlier like they did and then overly tighten now, which I, I would argue is what they're doing.
7: That's exactly the attitude that we have on Wall Street. And and unfortunately, <laughs> the economy doesn't work in high-frequency time. Uh, it takes a while for the economy to shift. Look how long it's taken for consumers to start to feel the, the, the cutback in, in income and the cutback in subsidies they've been receiving much longer than than people guess. Why is it that the housing has been so resistant, right? So people, I think, think things turn on a dime. And I think the people at the Fed and people like Loretta uh, Mester have a better sense of where, how the economy evolves. It is in quarterly time, not nanoseconds.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. I could keep going, but I think it's a very good point. uh, I'm glad that you made it, Bill. Thank you for your time today. It's good to check in with you. Thanks for having me. Billy with the Milken Institute. Still to come, both President Biden and Xi Jinping sounding positive after their meeting yesterday. And President Xi's hold American executives. He wants a partnership with the U.S. We'll have more from last night's CEO dinner coming up on The Exchange, Dow's Down 103.
8: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. With your CNBC News update at this hour, the House Ethics Committee chairman says he plans to file a motion to expel Congressman George Santos on Friday. The move comes after the panel released a report that found substantial evidence of criminal behavior, including conspiracy, wire fraud, and false statements. Santos announced he won't be running for re-election. New Yorkers will have their criminal records automatically sealed if they complete their sentences and stay out of trouble. Governor Kathy Hochul today signed the Clean Slate Law, which will seal records three years after completing a misdemeanor sentence and eight years after a felony conviction. Several other states, including uh, New York, California, and Michigan, have passed similar legislation. SpaceX's Starship is ready to take flight again. The FAA cleared the mega rocket to take off sometime Friday morning, seven months after the first test flight exploded. The Starship is the most powerful launch vehicle ever built and is key to NASA's moon mission scheduled in 2025. Kelly, back to you.
1: Tyler, I will see you soon. Thank you very much. CNBC's newest documentary focuses on Formula One, exploring how the Racing League is growing in attendance, viewership, and market value. It also looks at the sport's future, including the ambitious Las Vegas Grand Prix, which is set to race down the strip this weekend. Here's a sneak peek ahead of tonight's premiere. Team bosses say the cost cap, which limits what they can spend on building and developing their cars, has also made their finances more predictable.
7: Before, somebody investing in a race team didn't know if he would spend 200 million a year or half a billion a year. There was uh, everything in between.
1: Financial stability, in turn, has helped drive a surge in the value of the teams.
5: When we got involved, literally, the, the bottom teams were being traded for zero. Today, I don't think you could buy a team for less than $750 million, and the top teams are valued $3 billion. That's a total change.
1: The full documentary, Inside Track, The Business of Formula One, premieres tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, right here on CNBC. Coming up, executives from across corporate America, from Tim Cook to Larry Fink, attended last night's dinner with Chinese President Xi Jinping. We'll bring you what the Chinese leader had to say and whether this all marks a true turning point in his relationship with America. That's next. Welcome back. President Biden saying he and Chinese leader Xi Jinping made real progress during their meeting yesterday while she told American CEOs over dinner that China is willing to be a partner and friend of the U.S. Eamon Javers joins us now from San Francisco on with more on what could be the start of thawing tensions between the two countries. Eamon.
9: Hey there, Kelly. That's right. I was in the room for just an extraordinary evening last night as the leader of the Chinese Communist Party told a room full of many of the wealthiest capitalists in the world that, as you say, China is ready to be a partner and a friend of the United States. And he drew a standing ovation from the ballroom full of top American executives. Some of the biggest names in finance were there, including billionaire BlackRock CEO Larry Fink and billionaire Blackstone Group CEO Stephen Schwartzman, who flanked Chinese President Xi Jinping at the head table in the ballroom. Also in the front of the room were Tim Cook of Apple and Albert Bourla of Pfizer, among a star-studded cast of capitalists. Xi Jinping said the United States and China have a responsibility to lead the world.
10: The number one question for us is,
9: are
3: we adversaries or partners? If one sees the other side
2: as a primary competitor, the most consequential
3: geopolitical challenge
2: and a pacing threat, it will only lead to misinformed policymaking, misguided actions and unwanted results.
9: And, Kelly, one interesting note, Elon Musk was in the building and he attended a VIP reception before the event in the room where Xi Jinping was expected to be. But the Tesla CEO left before the dinner began, so he was not seated at the head table with all the other CEOs last night. Kelly, back over to you.
1: Uh, Yeah, and we also, as you said, Elon Musk no longer speaking at the CEO summit, replaced by John Kerry. Many have noted uh, Kerry's presence there. What is his role exactly? Exactly.
9: Well, Kerry is the climate envoy uh, for the administration, for the Biden administration. He uh, negotiated with his Chinese counterpart some climate uh, goals, basically, that they agreed to uh, just before the Biden and Xi meeting. So that was sort of one of the announcements that they had just to sort of tee this thing up. We also have an announcement here from APEC explaining Elon Musk's absence. They say Elon Musk had a schedule change that prevented him from joining the APEC CEO Summit 2023. We're thankful for his offer to join the session remotely. However, it was agreed among all speakers that participation would be in person. We look forward to Elon joining us at a future APEC CEO summit. No indication who canceled on who necessarily here uh, or whether any of this had anything to do with that controversial tweet uh, that Elon Musk put out yesterday that uh, many on Twitter are calling anti-Semitic. Kelly,
1: right, right. All over the judge report. Uh, it may have something to do with it. We don't know. Amen. Yeah. what are we expecting to hear from the president shortly?
9: Well, look, this is the president's opportunity to take a victory lap uh, for what was seen uh, as a very successful summit. Remember, the the bar here was set intentionally very low. The idea was they would not agree to much of anything. The main thing was these military-to-military talks, and that was a point of agreement. They're opening up at both the top level, so at the sort of chairman of the Joint Chiefs level, but also at the operational level, so ship captains will be able to speak to each other from the U.S. Navy and the Chinese Navy. Uh, That's important for Deacon inflicting the South China Sea in particular on air and on sea, where there is just this possibility of an accidental military conflict breaking out there because both militaries are operating sometimes within feet of each other. Uh, and there are some there have been some tense moments over the past year. That's seen as a, a successful win here to restart those military to military talks. So I think for Biden, you will hear him emphasize that, uh, emphasize that this summit was a success in his view, but also still trying to uh, remain critical of Xi Jinping and the Chinese government, as he did yesterday uh, when he was asked uh, if he still believes that Xi Jinping is a dictator. And Biden said yes.
1: And we will bring those remarks uh, when they begin. For now, Eamon, thank you so much. Our Eamon Jaffers in San Francisco. Still ahead, there's 18 percent short interest in GAP right now. Near-term options imply a 5 percent move either way for applied materials tonight. And BJ's hasn't missed on the bottom line, get this, once In the past 20 quarters, will they break that five-year streak? We'll get the action, the story, and the trade on all three in earnings exchange next. Welcome back to The Exchange. For better or worse, we are in the thick of retail earnings season now. Next on tap are BJ's, Gap, and also the semi-name Applied Materials, which hit a new 52-week high today in reports after the bell. Here with our trades is Jeff Kilberg. He is KKM Financial CEO and a CNBC contributor. Jeff, appreciate you joining me. Uh, Let's start with Gap. The shares Actually, up about 20% this year this has been a long time turnaround story, obviously. UBS concerned about increasing pressure on spending and expects GAP to report a loss of market share after the bell today. You are cautiously optimistic, if I'm not mistaken.
10: You know what I am, Kelly, and the word retail today feels like a four-letter word. Yeah. As you're seeing. Gap's already down in the wake of Walmart. But what's interesting about Gap, it's 61% off its 2021 high. So I think there is still room to run from a forward PE perspective, Kelly. It's only trading at 20 times, just above its average. So I am cautious here. Maybe this is the dip before the earnings, but this is a small market cap company, less than $5 billion. So when you think about that in proportion to some of the other big retailers out there, there is volatility in this name. Be ready, I think as a trade, this makes sense to own.
1: All right. What about BJ's? BJ's Wholesale, uh, they're down 4% as well today and only up about 2% for the year, interestingly. Evercore recently put them on their tactical underperform list because of slowing grocery and consumable demand, saying it could lead to more cautious guidance. The street will also be watching how new credit cards are faring and membership renewals. So after what we heard today from Walmart, you do have to wonder if (laughs) BJ's could be next uh, in line, next domino to fall.
10: Yeah, and people are getting out in front of that, right, Kelly? You're seeing just retailers really is a bad word today. And again, this is down before earnings, which is fascinating to see. But remember, this is also a very small market cap, about $9 billion when you compare it to <laughs> Costco. And I actually own Costco. I don't own BJ, but I think you can own this as a trade. If you look technically, Kelly, when you see this pullback of about you know, 2 $3 today, this is lining up with the 50-day and the trading movement average. And if you do see BJ, which I know you alluded to earlier, his beat just for so many consecutive quarters. I think there's a pop in the name, but you do have to be considerate. You know, when you're looking here, uh, longer-term exposure. I want to own Costco. I don't want to own BJ. But these are great, volatile, and I'm calling them small market cap. They're still nine, pe- nine to ten billion dollar market cap names, but they pale yeah. in comparison when you talk about these big blue chip names like a Costco.
1: Oh, it's crazy. Nine billion dollar market cap for BJ's. Costco is two hundred and fifty-six billion for what a lot of consumers would think is the same kind of company. It, Very different. And it's the- not.
10: But I mean, it's amazing. BJ's has about two hundred store in 17 states, where Costco has 1,000, about 600 in United States and about wow. 300 outside. So it's hard to compare the two. They trade very differently, but they are going to be lock and step with this retail wave that we're enduring today.
1: 55 seconds on the clock, applied materials, the shares are trading uh, levels we haven't seen since January 2022. What do you do with the stock here, Jeff?
10: You know, it's fascinating to see another 5% prediction in the options market on where this is going to go. But this is the artificial intelligent undercurrent. I think you look at its biggest customers, Intel, and Taiwan Semiconductor, I think there's an opportunity to move higher here. But you are expecting earnings to come in weaker year over year. So I think when you talk about this, it's trading at half the P ratio of AMD, of Mm -hmm. NVIDIA, and Intel. So I want to be a buyer here. But I have my trading cap on today, not my long-term investor, when you talk about this specific name.
1: All right. 20 times, 40. That's why they call him the killer. Jeff Kilberg, thank you so much for fitting that all, in. We appreciate it. That does it for The Exchange. But next on Power Lunch, as we mentioned before, Amazon has just announced it will allow dealers to sell cars, starting with Hyundai. We're going to talk to the CEO of Hyundai North America about that. Tyler's getting ready. I'll see you on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day.
2: Available now wherever you get your podcasts.